everyone, and welcome to yet another edition of Bavarian Podcast Works. You're here with me, Samrin, and with I Need No Name here following the Germany game. So, um, yeah, that was quite something. So I'm just going to put out Germany's lineup here. And um, okay, so Kevin Trapp was in goal, which made me very happy. Uh, Benjamin Hendricks, Jantenta, um and Antonio Rudiger were at the back with Kai Havertz making a special appearance at left back. Gundogan and Kimmich were in midfield, flanked by Virtan Zane and Fulkrug and Brandt were up top. Actually, I think Zane was up top, Brandt behind. But yeah, in let's let's start there. Well, a quick summary: if you didn't catch the game, Havertz scored early on. Uh, Karioglu equalized for Turkey. Turkey went two one up through Keenan Yildiz, and then Niklas Fulkrug, always good for a goal, equalized for Germany, with Yusuf Sari scoring the winning penalty for Turkey after Kai Havertz was at fault, sort of, for a handball. Okay, and what do you have to say about this lineup? I don't want to say anything. I mean, oh my, like, i let you speak for a minute, because what can you say after watching a game like that? Like, literally... From the moment, and you can check this on our gameplay, from the moment the lineup came out, I was like, what the absolute, I can't say this word because we have to mark the podcast as non-explicit, but what was that lineup? Like, how? Why? Uh, This is the thing. Yeah. Right. With Nagelsmann. This is the exact thing that got him fired at Bayern Munich. And I think this game is going to serve as a reminder to certain sections of the Bayern Munich fan base who look back at the Nagelsmann era, such as it was, with rose-tinted glasses, because it wasn't always Nagelsmann doing funny experiments and Bayern playing great attacking, free-flowing football and beating PSG and this that. A lot of it was just like this game, where Nagelsmann does something incredibly stupid, and then you get this kind of result because he just doesn't know when to leave a good thing alone. Let's start with the obvious one. Kai Havertz at left back. You know, why Why should I be saying this? Because you, Samrin, are an Arsenal fan, aren't you? And Kai Havertz happens to play for Arsenal. So you tell me, what? <laughs> what the hell? What is going on? Um, uh, I wish this was on uh, YouTube and you could see our facial expressions. But anyway, uh, I will tell you, when Havertz signed for Arsenal... Um, my dad, who's the Arsenal fan, and so I kind of got into support through him. He said, this is going to be a very bad deal. This is overpaying. Yeah, And, duh. and um, you know, a lot of people could have said that. But, you know, every coach, I think you were saying this in, has to save Kai Havertz. So here we go. Arteta is also trying to save him, trying him in a variety of positions. But in the positions up front, in the four positions up front, not at left back, a player who's already had a tough time fitting in in England, who's had a tough time basically ever since since he stepped out of Leverkusen, who continues to have a tough time, somehow ends up playing one of the most problematic roles for Germany. And inevitably, things go wrong. He, um, you know what? Fine. Nagelsmann wants to try this. Okay. But maybe, maybe today was not the time to try it. And this was just, this was just ridiculous. And if this team wasn't already off balance, this threw the team even more off balance because 
now you had a defense that didn't just only have to look after its own errors, but kind of had to compensate for a new left back. And as you would expect, chaos ensued because Kai, who's not very good at his main positions, did not have a great day. You know, in what's your day? Yes, I know. I remember. What does this mean? How do you? How do you? How do you assess (laughs) this level of chaos? Like, what is actually like? Is there anything about Germany that makes sense? Because I don't understand. First of all, Havertz scored. Don't know. Don't know how. Don't know why. I'll I'll just I'm gonna go out on a limb and say that both of Germany's goals were pure luck. Why? Because they happened early in each half when Turkey were not settled yet. Once Turkey got settled, nothing went through them. In comparison, you look at how many saves Trap had to make. It's very simple. Turkey were better. And this is this is just it. The midfield. We had we saw such a good pairing between Gross and Gundogan in the last international break. Why has Nagelsmann decided to break that up? Why did he decide to put Kimmich back in? And if he has to play Kimmich, why not put him at right back? Because we saw how poor the German backline was. He could have used a lot of help. These are the questions that, like, it's it's not even like a pure tactical thing. It starts right from the moment the players are selected on the team sheet. If you don't even get that right, then how can you expect the game to go right? Am I wrong? And like, can you explain why why, why this midfield? We know that Kimmich and Gundogan have never worked well together. Flick tried it, Lowe tried it. It never, ever, ever. I'm I'm just so frustrated. It's like Germany keep going in circles. The experiments that need to be made don't get made. And the experiments that have been tried to death, just they keep coming back. What is this? What are German coaches trying to prove? All you needed to do was look at the faces of Philipp Lahm and Rudy Waller in the stands. That's all you needed to do to realize that Germany just did not make any sense today. The only thing that makes sense to me is full Krug up top, a real target. But then the problem surrounding that is I think Germany kind of got used to not playing with not playing with the target man. Um, And Bayern had the same problem when in Kane's first few matches, like Kane had to drop back so deep to retrieve the ball. Kane still has to do that, but it's getting better. After Gnabry came on, he, you know, the classic Bayern problem, dribble left, right, and no one tried to find Fulcrum. So because the rest of the parts don't make sense, even when the striker problem is halfway solved, it still doesn't work. And I'm not sure that most of the team, aside from maybe Rüdiger and Ta, who who just, you know, it, their roles don't change that much, actually know exactly what they're supposed to be or what they're supposed to do. Because well, obviously, like, yeah, w- what was that? What was yeah. the setup? Like, how many attackers did we see? We saw... Let me just describe this, since I guess if people haven't seen the game, they won't understand the level to which Nagelsmann was trying to cook here. And he did not cook. Let me, let me make that clear. He was trying, though, because it was the classic hybrid back three. How many times have we, when he was in charge of Bayern, how many times did we say that this setup does not work? And what makes him think that this would work for Germany, who have far worse defenders than Dato Mubakano and Matthias Delict and Benjamin Pavard. Like, 
what happened was, so let me just describe it. In possession, Germany switched to a back three. They build up from the back that way, which is pretty much pointless. And they have an almost a front, how would I describe it? A front five, a front six almost? Like, that is too many attackers. How do you have a team with, let me just say this, okay? Niklas Fulkrug, Kai Havertz, Florian Wirtz, Leroy Sané, and who am I missing? Julian Brandt. Julian I, Brandt almost for, yeah. I almost forgot about Julian Brandt because, oh boy, we have yeah, to talk well, about Julian know. Brandt. Yeah, we have to talk about Julian Brandt. How do you have a team with this many similar players on the pitch at the same time? Like, what is the plan here? What what was Nagelsmann trying to do? What was, how was the ball going to get to full crew? Did you see, even in the first half, when Germany were 1-0 ahead, did you see any proper defined patterns of play? Because all I saw was Kibik get the ball, he passes it to Sané, Sané dribbles someone, and then gets stopped. That's all I saw. And that was the best that Germany could do. There was nothing else in terms of substance. And that's kind of obvious because, like, you have no real wingers. You have, like, a dozen attacking midfielders. You don't pass the ball to your striker because your striker isn't the kind of player who can really link up play. So what is left? What is actually left for the team to capitalize on? What was Nagelsmann trying to do here? And then, defensively, this is something that Sadler brought up. He was, for whatever reason, really impressed with how Germany were defending early in the game. And I brought up the point that there was nothing impressive because all Germany were doing was shifting from a back three into a back five and having all the attackers drop back to try and pressure the opponent of the ball. This is basic stuff. And more importantly, it was slow and it kept leaving space for Turkey to exploit. That is the entire problem. And slowly, given that the German attack was so toothless, Turkey could just slowly sit back and spend the first 30 minutes examining how the German backline operated. And then they realized this backline is insanely vulnerable to long balls over the top. It wasn't even a high defensive line, which makes it even worse. And then they started doing that consistently. And they started getting behind the defenders. And Germany completely broke down and surrendered the initiative. And then from minute 30 to minute 90, I'm pretty sure it was like 90% Turkey with occasional moments of Germany having a resurgence. This is the thing. This goes down to the nitty-gritty tactical details. What the hell did Nagelsmann do in training? What was his plan? Can you see, like, what is this? What is the philosophy here? What, other than the hybrid back three, what is what does Nagelsmann even want to bring to this team? That's you know, I I don't I don't understand this, and I know we're going to talk about Brandt, but Brandt definitely I I just don't know what Brandt was doing or if he was doing it. Well, but I think I Brandt really might agree. Think... <laughs> I think that's actually not fully down to Brandt because he's not having a bad season for Dortmund. He's doing okay. Um, if Aiden Tersich can give him a more defined role, that says a lot about Nagelsmann. But you do run into that problem when you have Sané, when you have Wirtz, when you have... Um, I don't know. I felt like Kai Havertz sometimes. he like I think the first goal resulted from Havertz just kind of dropping back into his regular position. Yes. But yeah, and so he was playing where he's supposed to. And not at left back, because if he keeps his position at left back, that goal probably doesn't happen. So it's just, it, it's ridiculous. There are so many similar kinds of players. And 
I felt so bad for Florian Wirtz because he tried to do a lot of things on his own and it just wasn't working. That's not how he plays for Leverkusen. And the team is not... And Nagelsmann could have used Wirtz properly and maybe we would have gotten to see the full extent of what Wirtz is doing at Leverkusen. But Xabi Alonso knows how to use him. Nagelsmann does not. And when you don't even know your full squad so well, it's not time to experiment yet. We can say Nagelsmann knows Kimmich, sure. Um, but and maybe you know some of the some of the Leipzig guys. But and what about Nagelsmann, the Bayern guys? And well, I don't know if he knows the Bayern guys very well for obvious reasons. Let's not let's not even talk about whether exactly. he really knows the Bayern guys well. And this is. And this is exactly what you were pointing out to, that a lot of fans do look back at Nagelsmann's time at Bayern and look at it through rose-tinted glasses. But these things happened and happened frequently. The hybrid back um, three kind of, sort of, sometimes at Bayern, it had the potential to work because he was using Davies. But none of the defenders in Germany are exactly Alfonso Davies. And it was never going to work. So... I just, I, you, there is no way any coach I feel like can figure out an attack by putting in Brandt, putting in Wirtz, putting in um, Fulkrug. Well, Fulkrug had a more defined role, but putting just all of those players together and just asking them, figure it out. It is just not going to work. I know they're all good players. I know they're all talented, but at the end of the day, this is a team sport. It's not about individual talent that you just draw up the most talented players in your team and just throw them out there. And if that was the case, maybe Kimmy probably shouldn't have played. Gross well, is a lot better, you know, with his... Gross is average on what... Gross is like, he kind of he kind of plays the middle part really well. Kimmich, Kimmich's forward play is great. Kimmich's defensive play is not so great. And Gross might just have been able to hold up the midfield better. I think that's fair. But, like, couldn't Kimmich have played right back? That's my question. And yes, the other question, and the other question that I say about, like, Nagelsmann and his German players, like, Leroy Sane, you said that Brandt is having a decent season for Dortmund. Well, Leroy Sane is literally the best player in the world at Bayern Munich right now, literally getting assists by doing nothing. And he gets goals more goals than he's ever scored in any Bundesliga season like look at him today look at the role that he was given the only way he was allowed to play was wait to receive the ball from a Kimmich long pass and then try and beat his man and then cross it inside it worked once which was the Hakai Havertz goal for which he got an assist but other than that it did not work and how is it supposed to work? Because it does not play to any of Kimmich's... Sorry, why did it say Kimmich? Well, it doesn't play to Kimmich's strengths, obviously. But it also doesn't play to Leroy Sané's strengths. And it makes you wonder if Nagelsmann did even watched a single buying game this season. But we know he actually at least watched one game because he was there during the classicer where Sewell and Schlotterbeck got absolutely slaughtered. So he at least... He has to know what Sané is capable of. Right. Instead, yes. what happened? What happened when Sane got the ball? What was his first passing option? Was it a good player? Was it anyone that he could pass to and see some kind of interplay with? Like, we we complain a lot about Coman and Gnabry at Bayern, you know? But I think this game really sheds some perspective on a lot of things at Bayern Munich. Because it could be a lot worse. It could be Julian Brandt having to link up with Leroy Sane. 
And if it's him, the attack dies right there. There is no way. There were so many moments where I saw Sane get the ball passed forward to Brandt and the attack died right there because what? First of all, Brandt's positioning. Second of all, Brandt's control of the ball. Third of all, Brandt is just not that good. He can be good for Dortmund, but being good for Dortmund is ephemeral at this point. Like, it, it does not translate to anything serious on the national level. Like, Fulkrug is not good for Dortmund, but he keeps scoring for Germany. So, at this point, maybe being good for Dortmund is probably something that we should watch out for. You know? How do you take yes. a player... How do you take a player as good as Leroy Sané and then put him in a system specifically designed to practically neuter him? Like, how is this a thing that a Germany coach can do? And my problem is that this is the third Germany coach in a row that is making completely nonsensical decisions. So I have to ask, what is going on behind the scenes? It cannot be a talent issue. And I'm, I can explain why in a minute. But I don't think it's a talent issue. I don't think it's a necessarily a problem with the talent of the coaches involved as well. You know, because Flick, he won a treble, Lowe won a World Cup, and Nagelsmann, his CV speaks for itself. What is going on behind the scenes of Germany that prompts all of these coaches to make these seemingly obvious unforced errors? Do you have any theories? I love to hear them because I have, I am baffled. Like Germany's decline actually just makes me so confused. I don't understand. I don't have any answers, but I do probably have an answer about Nagelsmann. This is his habit. That's all I have to say. And with the Nagelsmann, I think a lot of what got unnoticed, what went unnoticed at Leipzig was he did also do similar things. But because the club was RB Leipzig, it didn't get noticed and all his good work did get noticed. And this does not, this does not, this is not meant to say that Nagelsmann is a bad coach. He's not. He can he can do some really, really good work. That Bayern team before um the winter break before the World Cup last year with Chupo up top was doing just 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 playing fantastic football. But uh, I just I think one one small theory that I have is Germany have so many good attacking players that they just think for whatever reason, throwing them all on the pitch at the same time is going to be is going to somehow work. Yes, you know, um, doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results is insanity, but that's exactly what they're doing. That's exactly what they're trying to do. And I just I just don't understand why. I, I know that if Germany decides to go basic, then a lot of these attacking players will have to sit on the bench. This is not club football. You don't have to worry that much about that. And it would be worth it to go back to a very traditional 4-2-3-1, perhaps bring in Muller behind Fulkrug, perhaps play with Wirtz. He does great with Boniface over at Leverkusen. Two traditional-ish wingers, you know, throw Gross and um, Gundogan behind them and play a proper back four. Send Kimmich back in right back. And it would probably work out pretty well. But for whatever reason, Germany feels the necessity to play all of these midfielders. And you know what? Let, let's just talk about those midfielders for a little bit. Wirtz is cre- clearly very, very talented. But Gnabry blows hot and cold. He didn't start today, of course. Um, we know Brandt blows hot and cold. Havertz mostly has been cold. cold. Mostly cold. Havertz has been cold for a long Since. time. The Champions League final—it's exactly. There is that one game that made his career because he was bad at Chelsea that year too, wasn't yeah. he? 
and Tuchel tried to fix him. It didn't work. But Tuchel also played oh, him boy. out of position. That's been a common problem. And it's just it's, a lot of these guys came up and it was like, oh, they have the potential to be, if not the next Messi, you know, like uh, the next great midfielder, maybe like an Ozil type, et cetera, et cetera. But not all of these guys are or have lived up to their potential. Germany has to accept at some point that this is all these guys are going to be. Brent is always going to blow hot and cold. Gnabry will always be a little bit of a hit and miss. Sané is probably the only exception where he has risen to where he should be this season. But when you have like eight other bad guys, I'm just going to put like, I'm just going to say eight, so not to include everybody surrounding Zane, then your play is not probably going to work out either. So just leave them all on the bench. Just let them be. And it doesn't hurt to have the experience of Mulderanda. Miraclosa was not playing regularly at his club level, playing very little at club level going into the 2014 uh, World Cup or I think the 2010, one of them, 2010. He was on the bench for Bayern for most of that season because Van Hal had come in and he preferred Ivica Olic up front and rightfully so. Olic was a better fit for that team, but he had a great World Cup. You don't have to play regularly at the club level if you are a super experienced player because this team needs some experience built into it. And as much as I really like Wirtz and I kind of do like Brandt, this is not the kind of experience this team needs right now. I'm going to say that, well, personally, I think that Buller should be playing a lot more at club level. But that's a different, <laughs> that's a different, <laughs> yeah, conversation. That's a different conversation. That's a different, yeah. different conversation altogether. And you even mentioned the long list of pseudo attacking midfielder players that Germany has. You can almost include Gundogan in there because he is a central midfielder, but he has a very attacking role. And honestly... <laughs> Like, we didn't even mention Jamal Muziala today because he is not available for this international break. But if Muziala had started today in place of Julian Brandt, I somehow failed to see Germany still beating Turkey. It might have been a closer game. It might have been 3-all or it might have been 2-all or something. But there's something fundamentally broken. And it starts, like, I don't know. It, it must start from the culture. Because you bring up the fact that Nagelsmann always tinkered. And he's the guy who likes to tinker. Which, okay, fair enough. But what about Flick? Did Flick was always a guy with one plan. He was a one-plan guy. He knew exactly what he wanted. And as soon as he started coaching Germany, the experiments came out. Why? Why is it that when these coaches start working with Germany, that they start to like bending themselves backwards to try and fix problems that shouldn't exist? Why did Flick never play full group? Why does Nagelsmann try to get a dozen attacking midfielders on the pitch at the same time. Why is Kai Havertz always, like, why are Germany coaches always trying to rehabilitate some of their guys, like Kai Havertz or Werner? Why is it always, like, why can't it just be a performance principle? Why can't it just be simple? That is my question. Like, what is going on behind the scenes at the German national team level that is causing all these issues? Because... The players themselves, individually and for their club teams, are quite good. They keep playing good football. How many teams out there, national teams, can say that they have four or five Champions League winning players on their starting eleven with another four or five on the bench? That is talent. That is genuine talent. That, like, I don't think that people who criticize this current Germany team are really understanding. This Germany generation is mediocre. In comparison to previous German generations, I will agree on that. But it is not 
mediocre in absolute terms. These are very good players. So what is going on at like the national team level that is causing all of this friction that is making these good coaches look like idiots and these good players look like complete bozos? Because there's no other word for it. These guys seem to come together to be much, much worse than what they should be. It almost feels like institutional. You know, like, to just give an example at the club level, you think of Man United. It feels like every time Man United buy a player, they start off promising and then they completely fall off a cliff. Whenever they get a new manager, he has a huge pedigree. He did this and that. Starts off well and then completely, like, starts looking like the dumbest coach on the planet. Like, it's kind of like that. Like, Man United are almost toxic. And Germany are giving off that same Man United-type vibes right now. And I think that's very dangerous because it shows, like, something that is so insidious that it, like, there is no easy way to fix it. It's just a dozen things at the same time. Do you get that same feeling? And, like, or am I just being completely conspiracy theorist right now? No, I, I... I kind of get the same feeling too. But I will say, I think if you look at the chaos in Man United, of course, it's a club team. And if you look at Germany, I think the answer to Germany's one is probably a little more simple. And that is that for whatever reason, and again, we don't know the reason. Flick did this. Um, Nagelsmann just started, so we don't know about him. But there is this reluctance to just accept that some of these players are just as good as they're now, and they're not going to get any better. And expecting them to create miracles is not going to help. The problem, one of the biggest problems with this team was the lack of a focal point. Then you bring a focal point in, but now nobody knows how to play with the focal point. And that, I think, is what distinguishes this Germany from any of the sides that I remember watching, 2002, 6, 10, 14, any of those World Cup sides. And that was that it was very clear that at the axis of those teams, um, in 2014, it was Mestoso. There was there was someone this team was built around who could really make it tick. You could argue maybe Muller. And in 2010, we can say the same thing. Again, 2002, it was centered around Balak. What Balak did, the team had to follow. And 2006, it was very simple. The planning was very, very simple. And that's probably what's getting at it. They have too many players, they don't know how to fit, and they have less of what they need. And so every coach comes and overcomplicates it. But I wonder, to your point, if there is a pressure from behind the scenes to play all these guys, whether, because it, it surprised me to an extent that Flick didn't trust full crew. Yes, I know, like, you know, the second division stigma kind of kind of follows, but Flick had always, always relied on a traditional striker. Now, when Lewandowski was out, um, against PSG and Flick's last season at Bayern, he didn't decide to try something like Nagelsmann and go strikerless. He immediately put Chupo in that team. Like, no, we need a guy up top. And Chupo isn't exactly, you know, first division lights out striker either. Um, maybe more pedigree than Fulkrug. But then when yeah. it came to the national team, you know, he just completely, I mean, listen, Chupo did play for Stoke. Let's not forget that. But then he comes to Germany and he, and there's Fulkrug having a fantastic season. And he just refuses to play full group. Um, and that may have just tanked Germany's World Cup campaign. So again and again and again, I, I feel like there must be a pressure from somewhere in the DFB to put all these guys out. And maybe Kimmich as well. 
Because on merit, mm. maybe Kimmich doesn't deserve a spot in midfield right now. And the same thing can be said for Gundogan. I found it so strange that Gundogan was just handed the captaincy. Yes. That yes. felt like such a chaotic decision to me. When, especially when, Manuel Neuer is back. Yeah, it's not and like Thomas Muller is... is sitting on the bench. Exactly. And the game that um, Gundogan was handed the captaincy, the, literally the next game, Thomas Muller was starting. In, exactly. And it has always been a very clear seniority hierarchy in yeah. the German national team. And whoever had the most caps would get the captain's armband. Right. Yeah. There has not been any reason to change who got the armband at that point. I don't know why Gundogan got it. And I don't see what qualities he exhibits to deserve it that and to too. keep having it. Right. Like, yeah. it doesn't make any sense. But Gundogan keeps getting in onto the pitch and he keeps playing. And he has to play because he's the captain. There is like there is some it almost feels like Germany coaches are starting off with some types of non-negotiables that influence the night of decisions beyond what um is feasible in terms of actual tactics. Like I it feels like Flick was almost in the World Cup uh pressure to play certain players like Gunugan and Muziala and etc. And therefore he had to leave Fulkrug off because he was trying to keep Muller in the setup as well because he appreciates Muller. Same thing goes for Nagelsmann here. He feels like there is some pressure here to maybe show that he can fix the setup and have all these attacking midfielder type players work and also get his defenders and the back three kind of working. It's just those... How do I say it? It's just like creating problems that don't need to exist because it feels like this Germany team has the bones to play a very decent, very simple... 4-2-3-1. And what would the 4-2-3-1 fix? I know people are going to be confused about this, but look at the defense, for example. One of the biggest problems in the defense was the transitions. How they transition from going from a back four to a back three when off the ball. Right. So that added a slight amount of delay to the team's transition play, which allowed Turkey to score with stuff like long balls. You know, that is eliminated when you just play a back four from the beginning. These are just very basic things that I don't see why Nagelsmann doesn't see them. And he persisted with them at Bayern Munich. And this is probably his own personal thing. But the constant experimentation exhibited by Germany coaches ever since the 2018 World Cup is not normal. By now, we should have established some patterns. We should have established a focal point. There should be some guy in the setup that we should be building around. And aside from maybe, maybe Joshua Kimmich, who's bounced from midfield to right back and back to midfield constantly. I can't say that there has even been a single player in this Germany team who actually plays every single game. That is one of the problems. And just going back to Gundogan for a second, I was just looking at the 2014 World Cup squad and I couldn't remember him there, but I don't see his name in that squad either. And at the time, you know, Borussia Dortmund had, had a good season. I can't remember, remember if it was down to injury, but he wasn't in that squad. And Going back to your point, nobody really does play every game for Germany. Maybe it is time to have that conversation. Like, who do we want to build the squad around? Do we want to build it around Wirtz? Do we want to build it around Zane? Like, who do we want to build this around? Well, and isn't that's it, not, doesn't you know, it seem like Germany want to build it around Muziala? But the problem yes. is that Muziala is just, <laughs> yeah. not, just yeah. not there yet in terms yeah. of, like, being that guy. Like... And it's yeah. kind of unfair, isn't it? Because he's he's so young and he's still learning his game. He still doesn't have 
all the confidence that he needs. He's still finding his feet, even at club level, despite all his talent and natural ability. So it should be him. But Germany seemed determined to force the issue on some of these things. Nagelsmann's modus operandi for this, well, this short stint that he has signed on for, because he's his contract doesn't last beyond the Euros, saves Germany the uh, sacking fee, I guess. But <sighs> is to get Muziala and Wirtz playing together. That is the idea. The problem with that idea is there is no evidence to suggest that Muziala and Wirtz can play together. Whenever they have tried to, they have looked complete mismatches. And in comparison, it would have been much easier for him to just line up full crew with Sane, Muller, Muziala behind them. That would have been the easiest thing for him to do. And that would have started getting results ASAP. You know, so this refusal to take the path of least resistance is we're almost going in circles because it is the source of a lot of Germany's problems. Not all of them. There are problems with like talent. There are problems with the coaches' ideas, but those feel secondary to the problem of the philosophy itself of Germany, which does not fit the philosophy of the coaches that they keep hiring. And, you know, in this whole point of not taking the path of least resistance, this does directly tie a lot into what has been happening with Musiala. Um, Like you mentioned, they're trying to build a team around Musiala, but the problem is Musiala is neither an Ozil nor a Muller. His profile is probably closer to Asane. And that means that the roles that both Bayern and Germany are trying to shoehorn him into he's not quite ready for, and they may not be his roles anyway. This is, takes me back to Schweinsteiger, where he was an average winger for a long time, in, well into his mid-20s. I think he was 25 or 26 when Van Hal came in. And Van, Van Hal sees this guy and goes like, no, he shouldn't be here. He should be in defensive midfield. And then Schweinsteiger became a world-class player over that season. Sometimes it is that simple. When Muziala burst onto the scene, Flick was not trying to fit him into the Muller position. Flick was mainly playing him on the wing, and he looked brilliant. And now, for me, it's almost like since the initial spark has worn off, Muziala does fantastic work for Bayern. Don't get me wrong, but so many times you just see him dribble into nonsense, basically. Because, again... He's being tried in a position which is not his, and I understand that Bayern is in a replacement to find uh, is in a hurry to find a Muller replacement, and I understand that Germany's trying to find a person to build a team around. But why does it have to be Musiala? He can still be an exceptional player. Wirtz probably fits the profile of a playmaker better than Musiala, and Wirtz might be a better player to build the team around. So I just I, again. Path of least resistance. Sometimes the answers are there and Germany refuses to take it with the main point being Kimmich at right back. I, I, you know, I, I will never understand this. Just going back to the year when Bayern won all six trophies, Kimmich was awarded best defender of the season by UEFA. Best defender playing at right back. And he was an exceptional right back. And just watching Philip Lahm an exceptional fullback in the stands today. Like that's who Kimmich had always been compared to. And maybe that's where he should go back. So I don't know, but just about your path of least resistance is Gundogan captaincy is another. It, it just, it feels to me that when you hand the captaincy to a player who probably doesn't deserve it, you were starting up by setting a bad example. Uh, 
Gundogan may be a senior player, but he's not a senior player in terms of being a player for Germany. He doesn't have the pedigree of Neuer, Hummels, Muller, and I would say probably even Goretzka and Kimmich deserve more credit there. So I just don't see why Gundogan, who again also doesn't exactly fit where he is playing, is the captain, because I think it does matter who your captain is. And you even see it with Bayern that now that Neuer is back, of course, aside from the fact that he's Bayern's build up just starts with Neuer, it matters that Bayern's captain is back. So there's so many problems. And I think in without looking too far forward that there will be a group stage exit next year at the Euros. Yeah. I was just going to ask this, like, what do you think you're going to see in the group stage? And it's it's shaping up to be, well, a national humiliation, really, for Germany. Like, it's it, it, Uli Nagelsmann may or may not beat Austria in the next game, which is probably going to be something we have to talk about. But it doesn't matter, because if this pattern stays, it's not going to matter what happens in the next game. Because there is no chance that Germany are going to fix all of their problems because there's just so many to talk about. If the problem starts with the culture, then it just balloons into a hundred different small issues that at that point, you can't even say which coach will fix it. I'm honestly tempted to ask if this vindicates what Hansi Flick did with Germany, because many people have decided that Hansi Flick was never a good coach because of his Germany stint. Now with new Julian Nagelsmann having identical issues, do you think this is going to maybe change the narrative a little? To to your point, Nagelsmann's issues have started a lot faster than Flick's. Yes, that is a very big problem. <laughs> yeah. I mean, at least Flick, Flick did not yeah. lose a game, I believe, until, what was it, the Jap- Japan game in the World Cup. That was his first loss. Yeah. Yeah, and Flick's team beat um, Italy, who were European champions at the time, 5-2. So, you know, yeah, Flick Flick was kind of getting it right and then got lost. And I think a lot of people, I, I don't know why people feel the necessity to bring down Flick, but I think it might be tied to Flick's tactical inflexibility. But when one, when your main system works so well, I don't know why you necessarily need tactical flexibility. Exactly. If Nagelsmann could find one system that worked well, he would not need to try all these crazy experiments. And this is where this is where I keep getting stuck about Nagelsmann. He is a really good coach. He can find it pretty easily, I'm sure. It's just he likes doing these things. He's the kind of guy I feel like who, who like, you know, takes his car. Well, I don't know if he drives with all his, you know, bikes and all that, but he will take his car apart and then put it back together just a little differently for fun. And this is not going to work. And I think Germany might lose to Austria as well because of the four Nagelsmann displays. I think it has been four, right, that we have seen so far. This was the worst one by far. And that's not the trajectory that this should be going in. There were some answers in the games against America and um, and Mexico. Mexico. Yeah. And now he decides that, okay, those were not good answers. Those are not the answers I'm looking for. Okay. Um, I also think a lot is on the line for Nagelsmann here because after that Bayern stint, there is definitely doubt 
over how good a coach Nagelsmann really is. Because yes, he could cut it at Leipzig and Hoffenheim, and it is incredible to save a club from relegation and that they take them to the top four pretty much the next season. Um, but Nagelsmann couldn't cut it at the biggest club in Germany. Now he's with the national team. And if there is a group stage exit next season, I mean, uh, next year, then I can see his stock go down. So for his sake, Nagelsmann needs to get this right. But I don't think he will. And there is a small problem with Kimmich where I think Kimmich does yield enough power where it's hard to not play him. Although this shouldn't be the case, it is. But I also don't know that if Kimmich is benched for Germany, that he he can cause any problems or unrest because this is the national team. This is not Bayern. He doesn't have a contract with the national team that he has to negotiate like he does with Bayern. So, you know, if he's not working, either drop him or play him where you think he fits better. And I just, I just, I don't see a future where Nagelsmann stops tinkering. And I think Flick will get vindicated to an extent, although Flick's own decisions were just head scratchers toward the end. Exactly. Yeah. You know, the way yeah. I see it is that Flick might, if Nagelsmann continues in this trajectory, which is currently he won against the USA, drove against Mexico, and now lost against Turkey. At this rate, it's not looking good. Like three games, and he's already had a loss. And pretty much every single performance has been worse than the one before. So if Nagelsmann continues on this trajectory, it might make Flick look a little better. But that doesn't change the fact that Flick himself failed, and he has to take personal responsibility for the very poor decisions that he made. That Leaving that aside... Nagelsmann, you know, you said that this is the wrong trajectory for Germany to be taking. And I agree. I think this game is going to make things very difficult, not just because of what it says about the team, about because a lot of these things we already knew. A lot of these issues are not news to us, but it hurts the confidence of the coach. And we saw what happened to Flick. When his confidence was rattled, he was constantly second guessing himself, constantly changing things, constantly unable to ch- like find something that works. By the end, he was even experimenting with a back three because he had just no idea how to fix the issues, you know. And I fear that Nagelsmann might end up in that same kind of spiral where he's completely reactive to the problems that are being seen in front of him. And that leads to more tinkering more bad performances because like the players are never allowed to settle into something, never allowed to work on some kind of base. Every game is spent trying to make up for the mistakes made in the last game rather than play to the actual team's strengths. And that just leads to a vicious cycle where every single game you're essentially playing catch up. I think this comes back to the fact that these last few friendlies that Germany have had, they did not feel like friendlies, you know? It felt like Germany were genuinely fighting for their lives in every single game. Every single game, it felt like the Germans were out there with a point to prove, and they failed to prove it. It's really a big mental hole that the team and the coach and almost the entire federation is falling into. It's it's really really ugly. It could get really bad. It could get better, though. I mean, I'm not precluding that because, in my opinion... (laughs) Sure. Despite everything, Nagelsmann was still the best man for the job. The problem is, well, it is, right? Because Flick was also the best man for the job, wasn't he? 
we saw that the best man can still fail. And this is just like, like, it, it, it's baffling, really. It's just like, it feels like Germany just keep kicking themselves every single time they start a match. They were winning with just three minutes played. A normal team goes on, not even, it was Turkey's B team versus Germany's A team, maybe with a couple of players out, like Muziala. There is no reason that after going 1-0 up early, that they shouldn't have gone on to win comfortably something like 2-0. You can say that the crowd was hostile, but they were still playing at home. This is familiar ground for these guys. But the problem is that they always seem to second-guess themselves and allow the opponents to gain some momentum. That is the biggest issue that I see with Germany right now. That it's just like, well, not the biggest issue because we covered the biggest issue before this. This is the second biggest issue, the mentality part that they keep second guessing themselves. So they don't have neither the players nor the coach have the confidence to really make the thing work, even if they could. You know, I think I would not be surprised if this just goes completely downhill. And a month before the Euros, you see Rudy Waller in charge or something like oh, that. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Yeah. Or I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to, I've been joking about this. <laughs> to go. <laughs> to go. <laughs> because look, be is, the DFB cannot afford a coach that is not already being paid by Bayern Munich, can they? No, no. Um, But I to mean, your point about Nagelsmann yeah. being the best man for the job, I actually don't think Nagelsmann was the best man for the job. Uh. I knew Germany wasn't going to do it, but I actually think Van Hal was the best man for the job. Interesting. Yeah, because I thought he did the best he could with a pretty limited Netherlands side at the World Cup. The mistake he made was when he put Veghorst up top and things just worked out against Argentina, then when things went into extra time, he decided not to use that same approach. If they stuck to just like looping balls to Veghorst, Isn't I think they would win that a classic time. Nagelsmannism? Yes, I know. But Van Hal, I'll give it to him because he's old, skin older. So I give that to Van Hal. But other than that, the Netherlands, honestly, like who knows what would have happened if they somehow won that penalty shootout against Argentina. But he can do a lot with a limited side. When he took over Bayern in 2009 to 10, aside from Robin and Ribery, Bayern was a pretty limited side. Lam was an exceptional player, but that's about it. And you know, he integrated Muller and he did a lot of wonderful things. So he kept it simple and he also stuck to one plan. So I know Van Hal can alienate players really fast, but that's at the club level. And I generally wanted to see what he would have done with Germany. I think Nagelsmann was the safer choice, 100% the safer choice. He knows a lot of these players, not well, apparently, but he knows them. Yeah. At the same time, on the other hand, Van Hal knows Muller. And I think maybe what Germany really needed was somebody, aside from you know knowing Muller, who could see the squad with fresh eyes. I think a lot of the problems, well, not a lot, but some of the problems that Nagelsmann has is probably tied to his time at Bayern. Gundogan getting the captaincy may have had something to do with the fact that Neuer and um, Nagelsmann probably, I'm guessing, I don't know, just putting it out there, might not have had the best relationship because of what happened with Topalovic. There there may be things in there where familiarity is not helpful. And Van Hal coming in would probably have allowed a fresh start. 
2006, when Klinsman took over, and Klinsman was not a good coach. Let me say that. Like, let me just get that out of the way. His time at Bayern was a disaster. But when Klinsman took over at Germany, he modernized some systems. And also, he wasn't a guy who had coached extensively at the club level and so knew all his players. So he could take a fresh approach. And I think a fresh approach would have worked much better than the same old, same old. It's not like Germany didn't know about Nagelsmann's tinkering issues at Bayern. It, it, for anybody, it was obvious why Nagelsmann got fired at Bayern, whether it was deserved or not. And it may not have been fully deserved, but his problem throughout his time at Bayern was changing and changing and changing again. So despite knowing that, yes, I can see that he's German and he was the safer choice and, you know, he's still renowned and he, you know, did well in the DFB coaching academy and all that. But Van Hal would have been a better choice for me. What do you think? Oh. It almost feels like you're saying that Germany are inheriting problems from Bayern Munich. And this is down yes. to the fact that, well, yes. like the Bayern Munich dominance of the German national team for the last several, well, pretty much as long as I have been watching football, really. So, which is about a decade now, coming into a decade. So it's weird that these things could happen. And you can almost see it on the pitch because a lot of Bayern Munich's problems do translate to Germany. And the first name that comes up and talk conversations about a replacement for a Germany coach is a former Bayern Munich coach, which both Nagelsmann and Van Hal are. Do you think that Germany might need to divorce itself from this Bayern Munich connection? And second, is it like, is it even feasible theoretically? Because like, I don't see it. I, 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 Bayern Munich seems completely enmeshed, not just in the team itself, but in the DFB hierarchy, like I, I just don't see it really changing in, in any way, shape or form. That's a tough question to answer. And I don't think a complete divorce is possible. And whoever you get, there will probably be some Bayern Munich links right now, because I, I don't think we'll get back into the era of, you know, Joachim Love, where the German national team coach didn't have any ties to Bayern. But I will say, I think Germany, if, especially if the Euros, if the Euros are a spectacular failure at home, which they seem like it'll be, needs to take a risk on somebody who's not so closely tied to Bayern and who's not so closely tied within the ranks of the DFB. Maybe bring in a somewhat outsider. Look at Leverkusen so, with Xabi Alonso. Well, Zabi, I'm not saying... Yeah. I, I'm not saying I'm not saying like, you know, Javi Alonso should take over the national team. Oh, my God. No. What a waste of his time that would be. Yeah. But we need him at Bayern. OK. All right. <laughs> Discussion for later. He did say if he wins the title at Leverkusen, he might stick around. But it, it's it's things like that. I think Germany could try something a little bit different. An obvious option was actually to promote Stefan Kuntz. Well, didn't which Germany Kuntz didn't get do. fired by... Turkey. Turkey, yes. But again, he had success with the German under-20 side. Okay, yeah, they won the Euros German. with him. Well, if you're talking about outsiders, then why not Jurgen Klopp? Well, will Jurgen Klopp really want to take this job? Well, well someone needs to convince him. Like, it can't, <laughs> it can't, because the DFB, ever since Joachim Lowe, they've been taking the easy way out. Yeah. Right. They didn't they yeah. didn't fire him after 2018. They kept him till the next Euros. And then when they finally got rid of him, they literally just took the easy way out. They went straight to Bayern and said, give, give us Hansi Flick. And Bayern Munich, being Bayern Munich, we didn't make it hard for them. Right. We didn't even make them 
have to let them make a case for it. We just let Hansi Flick go. And then again, when Hansi Flick flopped at the Euro, uh, sorry, at the World World Cup, they again took the easy way out by deciding not to fire him, giving him a second chance. And then he predictably flamed out. And then what did they do? They again went back to Bayern Munich because they could not convince anyone else and said, please give us Nagelsmann. And Bayern Munich, not only did we give the Nagelsmann, we literally paid off part of Nagelsmann's contract so that he could go. So th- this performance that we literally saw today, Bayern Munich partially paid for it. Okay. My club paid for this. And I cannot believe I just stayed up to watch it up to almost, it's almost 5 a.m. where I am now and I'm still recording this. So that's the problem here. So I don't think that like the DFB, they need to start like taking some proactive steps, like taking any kind of steps, really, just not taking the most obvious or the path of least resistance. Weird how we're back on the path of least resistance, but when it comes to the coach, it's like, it's like the completely wrong choice to make. It's like everything is backwards. Yeah. I think uh, Germany probably needs to stop looking at its most popular coaches for the job. I think Christian Streich would be a Christian Streich would be a great pick for a national team manager. I um, think so too. But yeah, like, you yeah. know, do you want him to leave Freiburg for that? No, but he's not going to be at Freiburg forever. Actually, recently he said something about it that how he was just a little tired and he's been looking pretty tired on the sidelines. It's hard to keep up with Freiburg like that. It's been like, what, mm. 10, 11 years now. So I could see a bunch of coaches wanting a change in scenery, but the answers I don't think lie with the Bayern Munich coaches. And I also, well, who knows? Tuchel might be a success. Let's hope he is. <laughs> um <laughs> Try it again. Just go in circles. Do the same thing. Let's give it another shot. But the answer is not an obvious one when it comes to the coach. I think Jurgen Klopp would do well. I really do. But I also don't think... I think it'll be hard to convince him to leave Liverpool. Although he has gone past his sell-by date, kind of, at Liverpool. um, Because Jurgen Klopp's tenure at any club is supposed to last, I think, eight seasons or seven seasons. And this is one more with Liverpool. His team are doing great. So there's that. Um, Klopp might take it down the line out of a sense of national pride. But for now, Nagelsmann is not the answer. I, I just I just don't think so. And I just don't see how Nagelsmann is going to fight against his basic nature to get things done. And if he does, look, if he surprises us, well, yeah, that's a sign of a good coach who's willing to grow and adapt. But I don't know if that's Nagelsmann. Well, I think Nagelsmann is very adaptable. It's just a question of what is he adapting to because he seems to have That's very different, I mean, very different idea of what he's doing in his head compared to what we see on the pitch. Against Austria, we could legitimately see a perfect lineup with everything correct. <laughs> you know, we right. could beat them. We could right. see Germany beat them 10-0. And you know for a fact that it's not going to be the same lineup in the next international break. Oh, that is 100%. the entire problem with Nagelsmann. This is Nagelsmann. You know, yeah. you cannot really expect that kind of progress, which is, well, I'm going to keep an open mind, mainly because, like, the train hasn't crashed yet. It's still chugging along, you know. The the wall is getting a little bit closer, but, you know, Nagelsmann, it's, like, it's kind of like the trolley problem. He can still pull the handle, change the tracks. But, well... I think we've said as much as we can about this specific game. We've trashed the coach and the players enough. Let's talk a little bit about Bayern Munich because this is a Bayern... It used to be a Bayern Munich podcast, at, at least when I started it. So the topic that I had earmarked for this in terms of Bayern Munich is Alfonso Davies, his contract. 
I hear that apparently he has started, we've restarted negotiations with him. So do you think the ABs is going to stay? No, I really don't think so. Mm. I think when, when you get Real Madrid in the mix, not Barcelona, Real Madrid in the mix, it's very hard to stop a player from going. Alba left. Um, albeit Alba's history was a little different at Bayern. He was he was a youth player. Um, well, Davies can count, kind of count as a youth player too. I think he spent like half a season with Bayern too. Um, and then you had Tony Cruz who also left. I think Davies just just seeing him as a person and just seeing what he does outside of football might just want to grow his own brand a little bit too. And at the end of the day, the 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 picture of Bayern is a sensible club that does not run on superstars. Whether that's true or not is debatable, but that's the image that Bayern goes on, a family-run club and or a family-like club. So I just also, I think Davies himself might might feel like he's stagnating a little bit. I don't know if he does. He has said nothing related to this, but there have been various changes Davies's role has changed a little bit under pretty much everybody. So maybe Real Madrid is just a better option. I'm not saying that Real Madrid is any more stable than Bayern, but if you're going to have instability, you might as well have it at Real Madrid. So I think he's gone. I think he has one foot out the door. And I think the time to negotiate with him was last season. So if he leaves, this could have a few knockover effects. But I want to ask you, in what do you think? Do you think Davis will stay? Personally, I think that Davies is very comfortable at Bayern Munich, you know? And I don't necessarily see any indication from him personally that he wants to leave. I don't see a lack of commitment from him specifically. And the antics from his agent have more or less been consistent with a negotiating stance. He's saying that... Real Madrid are interested. When are you going to come to the negotiating table? Because what happened? What is the timeline of events here? The timeline is that Bayern Munich and Alfonso Davies almost had a deal agreed. He was going to sign it. Then Brazo got fired. After that, what did Bayern Munich do? Because we were leaderless at the top, no one reached out to Davies' camp and set up a new meeting and tried to get the negotiations underway and keep him around. Now, that's a huge indictment of the people in charge right now. And that's a, that's a thing that factors into this. But the fact that Davies is still willing to come to the negotiating table after all of that, to me, indicates that they're still willing to come to a deal. Maybe a bit more on in terms of salary and bonuses and stuff, which is the premium you have to pay for not moving fast enough. Because in my opinion, Davies should have been extended last season as well. Like, uh, in December of last year, really. I don't know what happened to our policy of announcing extensions in December. It's always been, like, it reminds me of back when Kroos left. After that, we ended up with a policy of constantly extending players when they before they entered the last 18 months of their contract. It feels like Bayern have just forgotten that lately. But with Davies, I can see a good chance of us keeping him. He seems like a guy, a bit like Coman, who may make a stink about leaving but once he gets the correct salary that he feels that he's worth, which is a lot of money, by the way, I think he'll stay. And as for knock-on effects, if Davies leaves, we can kiss Muziala goodbye. 
And if we kiss Musiala goodbye, that's it for Bayern Munich in terms of being a destination club. I think at that point, Bayern Munich will have to just play second fiddle. If he can't keep players, stars like Alfonso Davies and Jamal Musiala, that's the end. That's it for us as a big club. Right now, Bayern Munich is the place that you go to. A guy like Harry Kane, when he wants to upgrade from Tottenham, he doesn't go to Man United or Chelsea. He doesn't go to that tier of club. He goes to Bayern Munich, right? Or Man City. That's the place that he goes to. And he chose Bayern Munich because we... It's not like teams didn't have money to buy him. PSG literally tried as hard as they could. Harry Kane said Bayern Munich because we have the pedigree. If you lose that pedigree, things get very difficult. And you don't just earn that back. Look at what happened to Man United after they lost that pedigree. They still haven't got it back. And they pay premiums for very average players. And they just can't get out of the hole that they've dug. We do not want to dig that hole. I still you know, think that, you know, Davies we have dug that hole up. before, but go ahead. Maybe we have, at least it's not in my time as a Bayern Munich fan. For me, Bayern Munich have always been at the top. So I do not want to see us dig that hole, especially given the state that football is in. Catching up to the top dogs is much harder than just staying at the top, you know? Yeah, I agree. Um, in uh, 2006, Balak left and that, that really sucked. It was, I forget whether Hargreaves was before or after him, but Hargreaves left around the same time period. And again, that also sucked because Bayern Munich were no longer a destination club. They, you know, they couldn't get past the quarterfinals of the Champions League. And it took, it, Bayern basically put their foot down with Ribery when he was flirting around with Barcelona and said, guess what, you're not going. And putting their foot down with Ribery is what probably changed the entire trajectory of the club. So I, I understand what you're saying, but I also don't think Davies and Muziala leaving is that big of a dent to Bayern's reputation, specifically because Harry Kane is there. And if Harry Kane was not there, I would say, okay, we're running into a big problem here. But look, Tony Pro's left. He went to Real Madrid. Alaba went to Real Madrid, but it's okay. Real Madrid may just be one club that you can't stop players from going to, but they're not going to go anywhere else from Bayern. And to an extent, I'm okay with that. And it, I also think with with Davies, I think you're right now that I'm listening to it. I think it is really his agent and he's still willing to come to the negotiating table after all this, which means if Bayern pays a hefty salary, he'll probably stay. But I also wonder what is... Like, what is the price Bayern is going to pay for all these late extensions? Like, how long can Bayern keep affording playing players these gigantic salaries as more and more of the wage bill um, takes up, uh, you know, percentage of the expenses for Bayern? So I, there has to be a limit somewhere. Well, I think that limit is still pretty far away for us because among the top 10 clubs in the Money League, Bayern Munich have the bets wages to revenue ratio and our revenue keeps on getting record revenues every single year so it's like we have a decent chunk of leeway to still keep going up and there are certain players that if we need to free up space on the wage bill we can offload if i have to choose between paying serge canabry 17 million a year and paying alfonso davies 17 million a year you know who i'm going to choose right we can easily replace serge canabry with I don't know, someone from the youth team or 
like a new winger who will accept maybe half the salary or even that guy who we signed from Australia, Nestori Irakunda, you know? So that's an idea right there. So there is plenty of space to give Davies a lot of money because we are a very rich club. You know, we are not rich enough to spend a hundred, 150 million on transfers every single season, but we are rich enough to give our existing players, the players that we bought for very low amounts of money, we can easily give them um, 20 million a season. Like imagine 20 million a season to these guys, which is a huge salary. That's still 20 million a season to five years. That's still only a hundred million. And in, right. in comparison, making a hundred million transfer, you would end up spending like a hundred million on the player plus another hundred million or 110, 115 million on the player's salary plus bonuses. So tell me which one is yeah. cheaper. Yeah. So we can like definitely over, afford right? it, but we cannot afford having Davies leave and then having to buy his replacement with the 70, 80, 90 million. I definitely agree on that. I do. I just, I also don't in our current team, maybe um, Sainzic is better suited to the right. So I don't also see anybody that we could promote and give a try. So if Davies does decide to walk out the door, it will be very problematic for this specific position. I we just, could be okay for like a season yeah. or two with Rafa Guerrero, but like... Uh, I mean, Rafa Guerrero plays like, what, 10 games a season? Yeah, like, exactly. That's yeah. the problem, right? So yeah, it would still be an issue, but like it would give us time to think of something. And by Munich, one of the things that we do very well is that we buy fullbacks. Like we've had some of the best fullbacks. We have <laughs> had true. some of the best fullbacks in the world for well over a decade. Like Lam leaves, suddenly we had Kimmich. Kimmich moves to midfield, we get Pavard. Yeah. Pavard becomes Pavard. And wow, we get did Matsurari. you, wait, wait, did you just call Pavard a world-class fullback? He wasn't you? world-class, but he was pretty good in the travel. <laughs> he was, he was pretty good in the travel year. Okay. And then um he became he Pavard. And then we got Matrawi, who is really good. So we keep, getting good fullbacks and then you buy when you buy a winger from mls and he becomes the best left back in the world within the season of his signing you know you have something magical going on with the fullback position at Bayern Munich so we can keep doing that and we have had even like guys like Rafinha, Stanisic, uh, Bernat these are very good players for backups compare that to certain teams across the world I see teams competing in Europe with really terrible fullbacks and Bayern Munich fans do not really appreciate when they criticize Davies how bad the fullbacks at some other teams are. Like Dortmund, yeah. our main competitor, they had freaking <laughs> Nico Schultz playing for them at one point. And oh, they have Marius like, Wolf now. Marius Wolf. So this is the level that we are talking about for our main competitor. So right. that's the level that we're talking about at Bayern Munich. And our fullbacks are the guys who Real Madrid want. So yeah, yeah. that is that is the level that we're talking about and that is the level we continue to maintain and i think we can keep maintaining it you know if but the thing is that we should pay davies what he's worth and i hope that the negotiations go well as i do not think that there is any reason that the negotiations should go poorly things have been said real madrid interest has been leaked but realistically that's nothing new i'm sure by meaning already knew that real madrid were interested and we still have a good relationship with florentino perez the only reason that alaba managed to go is because we allowed his contract to run down. We could still get Real Madrid to back off with the good relationship we have with their, you know, board. 
and use that to our advantage as well in the Davies negotiation. And that's why that's I am true. still I'm still optimistic that Davies will extend. And if we extend him, this is important. David Alaba only left the season after Frank Rivery left. This is something that people always miss. If we keep Muziala here, sorry, if we keep Davies here, that's an incentive for Muziala to stay because Davies and Muziala, they have a good off-pitch relationship as well. I think that's very important. And I think right. that's all we need to say today because we yep. are running out of time. So, Samarin, you do the outro. All right, everyone. Thank you for listening. As always, we appreciate it. You can find all of us at different pages on Twitter. I don't have to tell you where. Um, have a wonderful night. And thank you for listening to Bavarian Podcast Works. This has been Samarin and I need no name. Thank you so much.